we are going to finish Mark chapter 10 today. We're going to go all the way from verse 32 to verse 52, which for us is breakneck pace. Amazing. We could be here forever. I'm determined to finish a chapter. Pastor G will go by lunch for everybody if we go along. Verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them, that is the disciples. And the disciples were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again Jesus took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit upon him, and scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word now, we ask that you would open up our hearts. For those that are receptive and wanting to hear from you, we ask corporately, open our hearts. For those this morning that would have a hard heart, that would think there's no need for you in their life, that would reject you and your word and the reality of you and your love for them, God, we intercede for them and ask that you open their hearts. That every heart in this place this morning would be soft toward you, wanting to hear from the creator, the maker, our Father in heaven, wanting to know what your will is for our lives, wanting to be encouraged and wanting to be set straight, wanting to be rebuked and wanting to have faith built in us. And so I would submit now, God, my heart and my mind and my lips to you. And I ask that you would cause me to speak forward just what you have for us this morning, nothing more and nothing less. And so Holy Spirit, instruct us in your word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We see here that Jesus and the disciples are headed up to Jerusalem. Why up? Because they've been down in the Jordan Valley, the lower Jordan Valley, near where the Jordan enters the Dead Sea. And from that valley, Jerusalem is located just on the east, up on the top of a small mountain range. And so they were taking a very well-known road that would go through Jericho and up and enter into Jerusalem from the south. And so they're going up to Jerusalem in a tense political climate. What we miss in Mark is a detail, a detail given to us in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, of course, we have the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus is dead and Martha and Mary are all bummed out and Jesus finally comes rolling into town. Martha and Mary run to the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, if only you had been here, Lazarus would still be alive. And Jesus said, Martha, roll away the stone. And Martha says, uh, Lord, he's been in there four days. By now he stinketh. He says, roll away the stone anyway. The stone is rolled away. And God says, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus came out. He was raised from the dead. He commanded the people that were there to take the grave clothes off of him. Now, all of Israel was in a stir about this miraculous event. There was no denying that it took place. Lazarus was dead and now he's alive. And because of that miracle, many people were beginning to follow Jesus. And the religious leaders that were began to get uncomfortable because as the people would begin to follow Jesus, it would challenge their political power base. 
And so the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin, namely, who were the 70 elders that ruled over Israel, as well as the scribes and the Pharisees, who were uh, religious political parties who made up the Sanhedrin, begin to plot with one another, what are we going to do about this Jesus guy? It's clear that this miracle has taken place. Everybody's beginning to follow him. And here's the problem, they say in John 11. If everybody follows Jesus, there's going to be an uprisal amongst the people of Israel. And being that we are under Roman occupation, the Romans will get upset. They'll come in with their soldiers. They will take away our place, that is their place of worship, the temple, and our nation. They will cease, they will cause Israel to cease from being a nation. And so the religious leaders of the political agenda are concerned. And so they openly now publicly plot to kill Jesus. And everybody knows that the religious leaders want to lay hold of him. In fact, they tell everyone in John 11, if you see him, because Passover was drawing near, if he comes to Jerusalem for the Passover as a Torah-observant Jew, you let us know, we're going to arrest him. And so now the word is out around town. Jesus is a wanted man. And what does our Lord do? He resolutely sets his face toward Jerusalem. He goes exactly where human wisdom and the convention of the people would say, don't go, you're a wanted man, they want to kill you. Jesus knew what laid ahead of him. He gives a prophecy of it here for the third time in the book of Mark. And he goes anyway, why? Because that is what he was born to do. He was born to be the sacrifice, the Lamb of God for our sins. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, no matter how messed up you may be, whosoever would believe in him would never perish but have eternal life. And so Jesus is heading toward the cross, knowing what lays before him. Jesus said in the gospel accounts, no man takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to pick it up again. The book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 3, tells us that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy set before him. Jesus considered it a joy to pay the price for my sin and your sin that we might be reconciled to our creator God who loves us, to remove the sin problem that we might have a freedom of relationship with God. It was a joy for him. So he's heading toward Jerusalem now. And he tells the disciples very clearly what's going to take place. He does so for the third time. The first time he told the disciples about Jerusalem and the cross was in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. It was in Caesarea Philippi, about 20 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, about 80 miles north of Jerusalem, several weeks ago. He told them very clearly, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified, but I'll rise again. And you remember the response of Peter. Peter began to rebuke the Lord and say, Lord, may it never be. And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Because your thoughts are not fixed on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, in human wisdom, it seemed like a bad idea. But in the economy of God, it was a sacrifice that would allow you and I to have a relationship with God. And so Jesus told them at that time, Peter disagreed. And the Lord taught him a very important lesson. Listen. He said, Peter, if anybody wants to follow me, they must deny themselves, pick up their cross, and then follow me. In other words, following Jesus Christ, in its very basic sense, means a denial of self. A denial of the sinful nature and the things that it lusts for. A denial of our own agenda to a certain degree and a yielding to the will of God. 
A willingness to walk through life with his plan and not our own. Submitted to his ways, not making it up as we go along. Exactly a chapter later in Mark chapter 9 verse 31, Jesus revealed to them for the second time. We're going toward Jerusalem now, boys. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be crucified, but I'll rise again. The moment he said that, we're told in Mark chapter 9, around about verse 32, that a dispute arose among the disciples. They began to argue which one of them was the greatest. Jesus was obviously going to be killed. He's told us for the second time. And so there's going to have to be a new leader. Who's it going to be? You remember, we did a whole sermon on that little... um, scenario there where they begin to argue who was the greatest. And Jesus taught them now for the second time that to be great in the kingdom of God, there's got to be a denial of self. The first shall be last. The greatest shall make himself the slave of all. Now Jesus is telling them for the third time. And he tells them now with more detail than previously. In fact, he gives them eight very clear prophecies in our text. He says they're going up to Jerusalem. That's no prophecy. They were on the road with him. In verse 33, it says, And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests, or betrayed. It can be translated that way. He says, I'm going to be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to condemn me to death. They are going to deliver me over to the Gentiles, speaking of the Romans. They will mock me. They will spit upon me. They will scourge me, and they will kill me. But after three days, I will rise again. I will be resurrected from the dead. Jesus is speaking to them prophetically. We're told in the book of John that he began to tell them the things that would take place afterward so that when they did take place, they would know that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. The Bible that you hold in your lap or in your hands at the time of writing was one-third prophecy. Fully one-third of it was predictive prophecy at the time of writing, speaking of things that would happen in the future. Many of those prophecies have been fulfilled throughout history. Some are yet to be fulfilled. Every prophecy that has been fulfilled has been fulfilled literally and completely. The reason that we often study Bible prophecy is to see it have a lasting effect upon our lives. It's not to merely tickle the ears and go, that's amazing. The Bible said that would happen in several hundred years. It happened. Wonderful, amazing. That is amazing. But it would affect the way that we live. That we, as Jesus intended for the disciples, would be wholly and fully and completely convinced as to the identity of Christ. You see, if there's no doubt as to who Jesus is, and there's no doubt as to who Lord is. And if Jesus is your Lord, then you're surrendered. And it's no longer my will, but your will be done. And it's easy to take on the attitude that we'll speak of in a few moments of Jesus, I want to make myself the servant of all. I want to pick up my cross and deny myself. And so the study of Bible prophecy ought to move us to a changed lifestyle. Number one, we ought to desire to live holy lives. Speaking of the rapture of the church, 1 John chapter 3, verse 3 says, those who have this hope in themselves, the hope of the rapture, purify themselves even as he is pure. That is to say, for those of us who study Bible prophecy, if you are looking forward to the coming of Jesus for the church, in light of the fact that it is the next thing on God's prophetic timeline, you're going to live differently. Why? You don't want to be caught with your hand in the cookie jar, so to speak. 
What do you want to be found doing when the Lord comes? I want to be found pleasing Him, living a lifestyle that is pleasing to Him. I want to be effective for His kingdom. I want to be affecting the world around me for His glory. And so as I study Bible prophecy and I see that we are living in the last days and that the Lord is coming for the church soon, I am encouraged to a holy lifestyle. Lord, purify me in my life. Purify my mind, my thoughts and my heart, my motives and my intentions. Secondly, it moves me to want to be an evangelist. I want to tell people about Jesus because once the rapture of the church takes place, the Bible is very clear that then comes the tribulation period. No bueno, no good, not fun. And for those who don't know the Lord as their Savior, they will be here to endure the tribulation period. And if there's any sense of human decency in your heart whatsoever, your heart is burdened with that. Your heart is broken over that. You are desperate for people to know Jesus, to be forgiven of their sins, to be transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light, as Colossians 1 says. You want people to know the Lord, that they might be with the Lord. And so Bible prophecy is to have a lasting effect on the way that we live. And so it was for the disciples. He's telling them here eight specific prophecies about his crucifixion and lastly his resurrection. And it was to affect them. It was to cultivate in them a boldness, a holiness, a courage in the face of adversity. Because when they get to Jerusalem, everybody's going to be against them in a few days. And people are going to be shouting about their leader, crucify him. And they themselves will be in danger. And yet we know, listen to me, Christians. We know that though the Lord spoke to them prophetically in this text, the disciples didn't quite soak it in, did they? When the rubber was to meet the road, they chickened out, they wimped out, they bailed out. They forgot that the Lord had told them this would take place. And in the Garden of Gethsemane that night, they all abandoned him. Peter followed at a distance and then openly denied him. John was the only one who even showed up to the cross. The rest there were the women who had been following him. Bible prophecy proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Bible is, or that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. Jesus fulfilled in his lifetime over 320 prophecies from the Old Testament. There has been a book written by a man named Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Everybody ought to get a copy. Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. It's an apologetic cornerstone. That is, it defends the faith wonderfully. And in that, he shares a study that a statistician, a scientist, uh, did on the, um, the statistical probability of randomly fulfilling the prophecies concerning Jesus' life. That is to say, these things that were prophesied about him, couldn't any old guy in history have been born? And because there's been so many people over so much time, couldn't it have happened randomly that they fulfilled some of these prophecies and Jesus isn't really the Messiah? He just happened to fulfill a few randomly? And so they did a statistical analysis on that. And you've got to understand that the prophecies concerning Jesus' first coming build upon one another. In other words, he would be born a virgin. He would be born at a certain time, according to Daniel chapter 9. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would be born in a major. He would be raised in Nazareth. He would go to Egypt. He would return, so on and so forth. They build upon one another. 
And so there was this study done. What are the statistical chances of somebody randomly fulfilling just eight prophecies? They're not really the Messiah. Their life just sort of coincided. They've fulfilled eight. And they figured out that the statistical probability of that is one in 10 to the 17th power. That means a 10 with 17 zeros behind it. The odds aren't good, people. How big is that number, 10 to the 17th power? If you were to get that many silver dollars, you would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. And so the odds of someone randomly fulfilling just eight of the 320 or so are the same as covering the state of Texas with coins two feet deep, taking a Sharpie and marking one with a black X, throwing it in there, mixing the whole thing up, and then telling a guy, hey, man, you can walk as far as you want, but when you pull one out, pull out the one with the X. The odds aren't good. You see, Jesus is who the Bible says he is. They went ahead and said, what about 42? What if someone randomly maybe fulfilled 42 of those prophecies out of 320? What is the statistical probability of that? One in 10 to the 157th. A one with 157 zeros behind it. It doesn't happen. And yet we see that Jesus fulfilled every prophecy concerning the first coming of the Messiah, literally into a T. And so now he gives them these eight, very specifically. I'm going to be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. I will be condemned to death, as the Old Testament said he would. Delivered to the Gentiles, as it says. They will mock me. They will spit upon me. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6 says explicitly that he would be spit upon. And scourged, Isaiah 53, 5 speaks of that. And killed, Isaiah 53, 8. And three days later, he would rise again. Jesus fulfilled every single one of those prophecies. But you see, when he spoke this to the people, it should have had a profound effect upon them. He told them for that reason. And yet we see that they missed the whole point when the rubber was to meet the road. Christians, listen to me. When is the Bible going to mean something in your life? When nothing is working out in your life, right? When everything's cool, well, you just feel like who needs it, you know what I mean? Everything's cool, praise the Lord. But when stuff starts to fall apart, when people around you are dying, when people around you are diagnosed with cancer, when you don't get that promotion, when you lose your house, when he breaks up with you, when all these different things happen, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's when the Bible and what you know of it and the Spirit of God working through it is going to mean something in your life. The fact that God is absolutely faithful to you is proven through prophecy in the Bible. That everything he ever said he would do, he has done on a grand scale and in the minutia of things. And so if God can be faithful to the generations, he can be faithful to you and your puny little life and me and my puny little life. And yet the disciples, we'll see in the following chapters in a few weeks, missed it. They somehow forgot. They somehow just numbskulled it. And it gets even worse in the next verse. Look now how some of the disciples respond. Verse 35. And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, All right, guys, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. Jesus had told him now for three times that he was going to go, that he was going to be crucified. And all these guys could think about is, well, who's going to be the next leader? He's out, so who's in? 
And James and John, you know, the sons of thunder, they're called. They begin to think, well, why not us? And so, Lord, make us your great leaders in the kingdom. We want to be on your right hand and on your left hand. It never amazes me how wicked I am. That I, like James and John, could look at the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. Can look at what God is doing in the lives around me and be totally, thoroughly, wholly, and completely absorbed with me. I'm no different than James and John. Thoroughly concerned about themselves in this moment. And Jesus will take the opportunity to teach them a couple very valuable lessons about leadership. Okay, guys, you want to be leaders? Lesson number one, the suffering of the leader. He says to them in verse 38, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? Drinking the cup and being baptized refers to the suffering. Baptism by fire often refers to suffering. Drinking the cup of suffering. We see it throughout the Old Testament. He was speaking here about the suffering he would endure. And he says to them, okay, you guys want to be leaders? Are you ready to endure a tremendous amount of suffering? Now, why does God ordain for great leaders in the church suffering? I'm not speaking about the leader of some puny church in Carpinteria. Great leaders in the kingdom of God. Great men and women of faith in the Bible and in church history. Why suffering? Because by suffering, men and women are refined. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces uh, perseverance and let perseverance And let perseverance have its perfect result, that you may be mature, lacking in nothing. We know that Romans chapter 5 says that suffering builds perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and we need leaders with proven character in the church. And proven character leads to hope, and hope does not disappoint. We need leaders that are full of hope and faith in God. And so, four great leaders... Jesus is teaching here that there would be a degree of suffering that they would share in with their Lord. You can study it throughout the Bible and throughout history. Martin Luther, arguably a great leader in the church, said, the greatest book in my library is Affliction. He didn't have a book entitled Affliction in his library. He meant that above and beyond any book he ever learned, or ever owned, he learned to be a man of God by suffering at the hand of God amazing that the Lord would so love his people that he would allow men and women to go through so much just to be tried just to be purified because he's looking for men and women that he can make into gold you know and to do so he's got to turn up the heat and burn out the impurities and with a tragic lack of perspective they respond in verse 39 they said to him we're able we can handle it no problem Jesus crucified we don't sweat that And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized. He said that they would experience a degree of suffering. John was killed for his, uh, James, excuse me, was killed for his faith. He was ran through with a sword. John died in exile, an old man. All of the disciples, except for John, who died of old age, suffered a martyr's death for their faith. As pillars of the church, they all experienced such suffering. And so it has always been throughout church history. But for them to be the leaders that they wanted to be was not going to be granted to them. We see it in verse 40. But to sit on my right or on my left 
This is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Second lesson we learn about leadership. We just spoke of the suffering of leadership and now the sovereignty of leadership. That is, God sovereignly chooses the men and women that will be his leaders. It's God's doing. It's God's decision. It's God's choosing. We don't get to choose that. We all grew up in America with people saying, you can do anything you want to do. And it's true in the secular sense. But in the kingdom of God, God chooses his leaders. He's very clear about this throughout the Bible. And Jesus says it in no unexplicit terms right there. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared for every Christian who is his workmanship, good works. He prepared them beforehand. They are the course of your life. They are preordained for you, and you are to walk in them. Now, God allows us to exercise a certain amount of free will, and we could choose not to walk in them. People do it all the time. But if we choose to follow God's will for our lives, he will see to it that there is a course of ministry set out for you, a course of good works, a course of participation in the kingdom of God. We're not saved by good works. We know that. We're saved by grace through faith and not of works. But we are saved for good works. The moment you enter into the kingdom by being born again, by being forgiven of your sins, God has made an investment with the blood of his son in you. And God is expecting a return on the investment. You are now employed in the kingdom. You are now a child of the king. And you play an extremely important role, every single one of us. Tragically, many people sit on the sidelines and go, wish I had his role. Wish I had her role. I want to do that. Why can't that be me? And they sit on the sidelines wishing, and so they never discover their role in the kingdom of God. They never discover their gifts and their calling and their placement. How do you discover such a thing? It's very simple. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. The first shall be last. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Make yourself the servant of all. Ask no questions. Begin to serve the people around you in need and love them self-sacrificially and your gifts will naturally emerge from that. God will see to it. Your penchants, your, your, uh, your leanings, whatever you have, whatever God has put in you will come to the surface as you begin to serve him. If you never serve people, which is serving God, then you will never know that you are his poema in the Greek his masterpiece. You'll never know all that he's invested in you. You've sidelined it by saying, my will, not his will. Now, as you begin to discover God's will for you, the way that he wants to use you, your participation in the kingdom, some of you will discover that you are called to be leaders. And there's nothing that could stand in the way of that. Ask Jonah. When God wanted Jonah to lead a nation to repentance, Jonah did it one way or another. Others of you will discover that you're not leaders. And it is a wonderful thing not to be a leader. James chapter 3 verse 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, because as such you will incur stricter judgment. Hebrews chapter 13 tells me that I will be held accountable for the souls of men and women within my sphere of influence. It is a wonderful thing not to be a leader. 
It is a wonderful thing to know your role and to walk in it in satisfaction. To walk in it in contentment. To say, God, this is what you called me to do. And this is valuable and this is meaningful because God doesn't do valueless and meaningless things. This has a place in your plan and in your kingdom. And God, I'm going to walk in it. It's destructive to begin to look and say, as James and John were doing, well, we want to be greater. We want to be the leaders. We want to be this and that and the other. Moving on. He says in verse 41, it says, And hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. They were a little bummed out that James and John were so bold that they were so brash to ask this thing of the Lord. And so Jesus, wanting to settle the dispute, calls them to himself, verse 42, and says to them, You guys know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, those not in the kingdom of God, lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. And now he's going to contrast with the leadership in the kingdom of God. But it is not so among you, those who are kingdom subjects. It is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There are only two things that Jesus ever prescribed for advancement in ministry in the kingdom of God. Number one is given to us right here. Whoever wants to become great shall be the servant of all. Whoever wishes to be first shall be the slave of all. And the second thing is repeated throughout the Gospels is that we are to be faithful with the little things. He who is faithful with the little things will be entrusted with more, Jesus taught in various and sundry ways. Those are the only two ways prescribed by our Lord to move in the kingdom of God into the places of ministry progressively as he would have us. To humble ourselves to the place of a servant of anyone around us and to be faithful in the little things. Don't despise the day of small things, God said in the Old Testament. And when we begin to do that, we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of the will of God. Verse 46. And they came to Jericho. Now they come to Jericho. They're moving along the road. The disciples have been set straight. Jesus taught them that lesson now for the third time. Every time he gives them that lesson, it is in response to him revealing the cross. Every time he reveals the cross, they argue about who's greatest, and he has to set them straight. That was the third time. It'll happen again at the Last Supper. And now they're moving along the road, that behind them, and they come to Jericho. Jericho, that first city that fell to the children of Israel after they crossed the Jordan River. And God had them do it in an interesting way. They had to march around seven times and blow the trumpets and shout, and the walls of Jericho fell down. You can read for yourself the archaeological reports from modern times. They have indeed found massive walls that simply fell on top of each other. In Jericho, you could go there today. I don't suggest going there today. It's in Palestinian control, and it's a violent place. But in past uh, Israel tours, we went there. We drove through Jericho and went shopping there. On this last tour, we didn't go there because it's not friendly to tour buses anymore. A friend of mine in the Israeli military was the last military personnel to hand over the keys to Jericho, so to speak, to the Palestinians, the last Israeli to withdraw from that place. Jericho, a great history, and it's there today. They came to Jericho, and as Jesus was going out from Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. 
it would be enough of a bummer to be a beggar, you know, to have to beg for everything, to be reliant upon others for all things, to be destitute, to be in that situation of having nothing, but to be a blind beggar would be hideous. And in that culture, even more hideous, because in that culture, observant Jews believed that if you had a malady such as blindness, it was because of some sin either you or your parents committed. And so now you are a religious outcast. You were a social outcast. You couldn't provide for yourself. You couldn't see to get around, and you were a religious outcast. This man was in a horrible situation, and yet he was in a wonderful situation. Parallel it with the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's a few words in the Greek language for poor. Jesus employed the strongest. It denotes a beggar who is so destitute, so broken, so lacking of anything, that he's ashamed to even look up when he's begging from people that his head is hung low and he's covering his head in shame and he can't even speak. All he can do is extend his hand, relying upon the graciousness of someone else. Jesus said we are blessed when that is our condition spiritually, that ours is the kingdom of God. Because there's got to come a time when every human comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I am spiritually bankrupt. I have been wrong, and you are absolutely right. I am a sinner, and you are a holy, righteous God, and you are also a willing Savior. I repent of my sins. I realize I am fallen. Save me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And though this is not necessarily intended to be a picture of that, this blind Bartimaeus guy is not an allegory. It's an actual historical happening. We can see in him a picture of the person who is separated from God by their sins, a needy beggar. beggar. And look what Bartimaeus does in verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now here's this blind guy. He's along the road. He can't see. He's got nothing. And he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming along. And he calls him, as he cries out, the son of David. The son of David is the paramount uh, name for the Messiah in the Jewish mindset in the Old Testament. The son of David a name of the Messiah. He somewhere along the line had heard about this Jesus from Nazareth guy, had determined that he was the Messiah and he now addresses him as such. This man is exercising a certain amount of faith. He hadn't seen anything, hadn't seen any miracles, couldn't see. Hadn't received anything apparently, didn't have anything. He had only heard something about the Lord and so he believed. And Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. That is why it is so extremely important, Christians, that you loosen your lips about the things of God. That you stop talking about other people and start talking about God. That we begin to declare the wondrous works of our God in the midst of our community. As Psalm 107 and Psalm 111 say, that we should declare his handiwork, his goodness, the things that he has done. We should be speaking of them. You see, because when you talk about the Lord, the Holy Spirit will see to it that faith is built in people. 
whether it be faith that would lead to salvation or faith that would lead to further Christian growth. When we speak about God and his goodness and the things he has done in the Bible and in our lives and in history, faith is built in people. It is so important that anytime you have an opportunity, you speak about the Lord. The kind of Christians I love are the kind of Christians that talk to everybody like they're on fire for the Lord. Pastor Ricky Ryan up at Calvary Chapel of Santa Barbara is one of these guys. He talks to everybody as if they were an on-fire Christian. You go to surfing with him, he'll go to the gas station, he'll be pumping gas, and a guy will come along and say, cash your credit, and Ricky will be like, praise the Lord, bro. Whichever one you want, man. You want cash? I got cash God provided for me. You want credit? I got some. Oh, bless the Lord, man. What you want? Guy's like, oh, give me the, give me the cash, man. Oh. Look at God's provision, bro. Look at it, bro. Here you go. Be blessed. God bless you. Rage for Jesus. I love that. You know what he's doing? He's planting seeds of faith in people. He's representing the Lord wonderfully. He's being a city set upon a hill. He's letting his light shine before men in such a way that they may see his good deeds and glorify his Father who is in heaven, Matthew 5, 16. It's wonderful. Just talking about the Lord and his goodness and his characteristics, it will build faith in the lives around you under salvation and under Christian growth. It's important that we do that boldly. This guy had faith by hearing, and it says that he's crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. In the Greek language, that word crying out is very strong and it's very interesting. He was making a whole lot of noise when he was doing this. That word in the Greek is kekraga. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Don't really care. Transliteration is K-E-K-R-A-G-A. Kekraga. It is an onomatopoeia. You know what an onomatopoeia is? Who knows what an onomatopoeia is? Okay, that's cool. Not many. Listen. You know what it is. An onomatopoeia is a word that is derived from a sound. In other words, if you go to say, hey, dude, the bee came buzzing by, Buzzing was an onomatopoeia. If you were to say, uh, the dog went wolf, you know what I mean? Or uh, let me think of maybe a better one. Boom! What did it sound like? Boom! Did you hear that boom? There was a big boom. What's a boom? It is a word derived from the sound. There's no other way to describe it. It's an onomatopoeia, right? Uh, meow. That's an onomatopoeia. So this word... Kekraga in the Greek is an onomatopoeia. It was a word used to describe or denoted the sound of a horse raven. Not a raven horse. A horse sounding, the horse sounding cry of a raven. Kekraga! K-E-K-R-G-A. This guy was crying out like a horse raven. Kekraga! Jesus, son of David! It was a horrible, annoying sound, this onomatopoeia. How do we know it was horrible and annoying? Look at the next verse. Verse 48. And many were telling him to be quiet. They were saying, shut up. He's sitting there going, cry God, Jesus, son of David. <laughs> shut up. And what does it say he did? But he kept crying out, there's that word again, kraga, kraga, all the more saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. We can learn something from this guy. 
what we can learn from him is that he acted upon the little bit of faith he had. He'd never seen the Lord. and never received anything from him. he just heard and believed, and he acted upon it. He wasn't going to let it go. Every circumstance was against him. He was blind. He was a beggar. He was an outcast. And every person there was against him. Shut up. You're annoying. We don't want to hear you. And he wouldn't give up. He continued to beseech the God of heaven. Son of David, have mercy on me. It's a wonderful lesson to learn. We ought to humble ourselves to that place and cry out upon God for the things that we have need of because there is a wonderful revelation in verse 49. Read it with me. And Jesus stopped. There it is. And Jesus stopped. You see, the cry of someone in need stops heaven. The cry of somebody who is desperate for help stops God. And Jesus stopped for him. The Bible declares in Isaiah chapter 59 that the Lord dwells in a high and exalted place and also among the contrite and the lowly and the broken in spirit. God is high and exalted and he's in heaven. And if you have a broken heart, God is with you. This was a broken-hearted, desperate man, and he cried out like a horse raven, and the God of the universe stopped for him. He was on his way to Jerusalem. He was on his way to save the world, and he had the time to meet with one man. God, make us like your son, Jesus. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. And they, meaning the disciples, called the blind man. I want you to notice that Jesus immediately employed the services of his disciples. The Lord simply could have walked to the man himself. The Lord had feet. The Lord could walk on water. He could have walked to the guy. But instead of walking to the guy, he said to his disciples, you go and call him over here. The Lord's always going to do that. The Lord always wants to use his disciples. We are the body of Christ. We are the extensions of him. We are his hands and his feet. When the Lord is going to do something in the world around you, he wants to employ you in that work. It's, it's amazing, I know. But he does. He said to the disciples, you guys, you, you bring him here. Every one of us can have that ministry. It's like the ministry of Andrew. Andrew is not a highly esteemed disciple. He's not in the book of Acts very much. We don't hear much about him in church history. But the few times we see him in the New Testament, in the gospel accounts, he's bringing someone to Jesus. He brought the kid who had the loaves and the fish. He brought the Greeks that wanted to see the Lord. That was his ministry. He just brought people to the Lord. We can all do that, can't we? When people need Jesus, when they're crying out like blind Bartimaeus, just grabbing them, just grabbing them and bringing them to the Lord. Maybe sometimes it means bringing the Lord to them, meeting them where they're at, ministering to their needs, whatever it is. And look what they told the guy. This is wonderful. This is great evangelism here. And they said to him, take courage, arise. He is calling for you. That's great. Take courage, arise, he is calling for you. We can speak this into the lives of people. Hey, is your world falling apart? Take courage, there's a God who loves you. If you've been knocked down and down, get up. There's a God that wants to redeem your life and make it worth something. He's calling you. The Bible tells us that God desires that none should perish, but all would come to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Take courage, get up. He's calling you. I love this in verse 50. And casting aside his cloak... He jumped up and came to Jesus. I often think of that verse because I often have cloaks that need to be cast aside for me to commune with the Lord. You know what I mean. Something we hide behind. Something we cover up with. A story, a lie, a reputation, an attitude, 
a secret sin, whatever it is, so often there's this cloak in my life and I've just got to disrobe from that thing. I just got to get it off me. It's like Hebrews chapter 12 where it speaks of the sin that so easily entangles us. It's like that net that the fishermen kept going back to time and time again and the Lord would always have to call them away from. Any cloaks in your life this morning? Anything that needs to be thrown off that you might commune with the Lord, do it. Verse 51. In answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, which means master or great teacher. I want to regain my sight. I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. James and John asked the Lord something, and the Lord said, what do you want me to do for you? And they told him, and the clear answer was no. Blind Bartimaeus asked the Lord, Lord, what do you, the Lord said, what do you want me to do for you? And he told him, the Lord said, yes. What was the difference? God's will. It wasn't God's will that James and John be in that position. James and John would have to accept that and be content. The Lord only gives good things to his kids. The Lord blesses. Where you are, if you're in God's will, is the most blessed place for you to be. Your heavenly Father knows best. The answer to the prayer of James and John was no. The answer to blind Bartimaeus was yes, but I want you to note that there was an answer to each one. God always answers your prayers. Sometimes it's no, sometimes it's hold on a minute, sometimes it's yes. But he always answers and he always knows best. There's a wonderful promise in 1 John chapter 5 about verse 14. It says, and this is the confidence that we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, we know that we have the thing for which we asked. If we ask anything according to the will of God, we have it. Blind Bartimaeus said, God, just heal me. The Lord said, yeah, I'll do that. And he healed him. If God says, no, it's something outside of his will. Or James chapter 4 comes into effect. You have not because you ask not. But you ask and do not have because you wish to spend it on selfish means. Your motives were wrong, James and John. So when we're praying, we need to be mindful of two things, the will of God and the motive of our heart. And if you pray the wrong thing, God can deal with both of them, no big deal. But it just saves a little time when we pray God's will. The only time I know that I'm praying God's will is if I'm praying the word of God, if I'm in the word of God, if the word is in my heart and upon my lips, God's will is clearly revealed in his word. That's how I know I'm praying the will of God. The only time I know that my motives are pure is when I'm submitting myself to the Holy Spirit working through the Holy Word of my life. Purified motives, will of God, you say to this mountain with a little bit of faith, get up and go into the sea and it'll be done, Jesus said. Your faith has made you well. Not that faith is some uh, inanimate or some adamant force that does something. The faith in God. Faith is faith in something. Faith isn't the end being. Faith in God. The belief that you have, blind Martimaeus, that God was able to deal with your situation. Because of that faith, you were made well. He was blind, but now he saw. Amen? Lord, thank you that you can open the eyes of those who previously could not see. Thank you that you can open the hearts of those who were closed to you and the things of you in your will. And I ask now this morning as we would worship and seek you, that you would cause us to do business with you, God. Some of us here have some cloaks that we need to throw off. 
Some of us here need some faith built. Some of us here need to come to grips with your will for our lives and rejoice in that and be grateful. Some of us need to cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Others of us need to be aware of your prophetic word and submit ourselves to your ways. You know what you need to do in our hearts. Lord, we're here for a few more minutes to do business. So attune us to your spirit now. And by your Holy Spirit, God, speak to each one. Purge out of us what needs to come out. Build in what needs to be built in. But do a work in us as we seek you and worship you.